Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily and our Friday morning long-form interview. We've got two great guests we are going to bring to you today. Uh, First, we welcome Samson Lee, our Hong Kong correspondent. Uh, We discuss a wide variety of topics, including the Chinese economic recovery. It's been quite impressive since the height of COVID over the last six months. We talk about the government really there buying a lot of base metals as well. We cover a lot. Every time I talk to Samson, we have this kind of layout of the land of what we're going to talk about. And I always come up with like a half a dozen different questions that spur my interest. So can't tell you how much of a valuable conversation it was to have with Samson. We then turn it over to Rob Sin, CEO technician. He's got a couple of ideas of mistakes people made when putting their money behind junior resource companies. Also very valuable. Thank you so much to Rob, the CEO technician, for coming on. Special thanks to our full sponsors of Mining Stock Daily. That's Western Copper and Gold, Minera Alamos, Corvus Gold, and Rio 2. We appreciate your continued support of Mining Stock Daily. If you go to miningstockdaily.com, you'll see a list of all of the sponsors. Click on their links, go to their website, maybe peek into their corporate presentations, might see something you like. But without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Samson Lee. Have a great weekend, everybody. Be well and be kind. Welcome back into Mining Stock Daily. This is our first segment and the highlight of our Friday morning in-depth long-form interview. Happy to be welcomed by a guest that always joins us from Hong Kong. He is our China correspondent, Mr. Samson Lee. Uh, Samson, it's a pleasure to have you back here on the podcast. Hi, Trevor. Uh, Thanks for inviting me back to your show. Uh, We always have thorough conversations because... It seems like you and I always have a lot to chat about. Uh, We're going to cover a number of different topics here over the next several minutes. Uh, We are going to talk a little bit about the, you know, Chinese uh, looking at the U.S. presidential election and politics. We're going to talk about, obviously, gold, silver, base metals, and some junior mining companies. Uh, But first, I really want to spend some time talking to you about the news that we've seen out of China. Mm. regarding the economic recovery there since COVID. It's been yeah. truly astounding. Um, on a relatively basis, I think, yeah, it's outstanding. But like um, considering the figures, like um, I think um, the Chinese economy is still underperforming compared to a, a year ago. Um, so uh, I think... Um, what has been happening overseas is still having a drag on the Chinese economy as a whole. Okay. Uh, so you mean regarding regarding what's happening overseas, are you speaking specifically pandemic. about the pandemic and the economic yes. ramifications of it? Yes, because obviously like um, right now, um, I think uh, China as a whole is uh, almost clear uh, in terms of COVID, but like... Um, for the outside uh, of the country, like um, 
because um, the pandemic is actually getting worse, not under control, uh, instead, instead of under control. So uh, I think um, there are lots of uh, limitations in terms of like uh, global trade or especially like um, potential mergers and acquisitions because as far as I know, um, lots of Chinese mining companies uh, have strong interest to acquire uh, projects overseas but the problem is because of the restriction in terms of traveling uh, many of them could not actually uh, have a chance uh, to do further diligence in terms of on-site visits so like um, everything has been holding back okay uh, we are going to talk about that because the last time you and I talked we did kind of spend a little bit of time chatting about some of the difficulties just with the uh, geopolitical tensions maybe China wanting to do more uh, work in companies such as Australia, South America, and you were a little bit uh, pessimistic if that would move forward. <laughs> but let's table that for a second. Sure. I want I want to go through these numbers. Yep. GDP in Q1 yes. at the height of the coronavirus. Yes. Uh, China reported negative six point eight percent. Yep. Rebounded a little bit in Q2 to positive 3.2%. Latest numbers in Q3 out of China are almost 5% growth. So it's not, I mean, you talk about a V-shaped recovery and I, and I know, and I know you have to take some of these numbers with a grain of salt, but that is, that's impressive. Um, well, to put things in perspective, um, China's GDP growth in Q3 was actually underperforming the market expectation as they were initially expecting, like, I think around uh, 5.3%. So like 4.9% is actually underperforming. But the good thing is um, the economic growth is actually getting better, especially um, all figures have been like kind of... Uh, uh, performing in a very good way uh, in t- uh, in September, um, so I think uh, right now the Chinese uh, economic data is pointing to the right direction. And as you mentioned, that um, we need to put a grain of salt uh, in terms of GDP GDP numbers. So personally, I actually pay attention to the country's electricity consumption uh, because I think um, it reveals a greater truth in terms uh, of how much power, how much electricity China consumes because I think it's positively correlated with economic growth. So uh, in the first three quarters this year, um, the electricity consumption in China has grown about 1.3% year-on-year basis. So I think it is somewhat in line with a 0.7% GDP growth in the first line, uh, nine months this year. Hmm. That's a, yep. that's so, quite a big jump. Yeah, uh, yep. And uh, actually, the electricity consumption in September actually picks up even rapidly, uh, up by 7.2% year on year. So like... Um, to break down the source of power consumption, um, China's industrial use of electricity has a market share of over 65% of total consumption. So um, whenever we see that um, uh, the electricity consumption picks up at a rapid uh, pace, so uh, first of all, we can assume that um, the industrial uh, activities in China has been picking up 
In fact, uh, when I uh, if we further break uh, if we further break down about the um, uh, the power consumption, um, the the power consumption in China actually fell by zero point two percent in the service in the service sector in the first nine months. So that means that um, right now the consumption sentiment in China, especially the service sector, has been recovering at a slower pace compared to compared to the industrial sector. And that's why we see that, especially in September, we see that um, not only the industrial activities have been growing fast, but the exports and the imports figures in September has also been outperforming the market expectation. So when you talk industrial use, so you're talking the manufacturing of, yep. of goods. And when you're talking services, are you talking more, you, like a uh, Consumer retail type, you know, food, restaurant, uh, uh, maybe retail consumption type of stuff. Well, the retail, as I said, has been performing uh, uh, like has been recovering, uh, uh, but at a much slower pace uh, because obviously um, uh, the country had was shut down in the first quarter. And then, like, you know, uh, many companies indeed went bankrupt so far and uh, the unemployment rate has been increasing as well uh, even china has been uh, recovering from COVID uh, like uh, six months ago um, but the damage has been done uh, so uh, understandably um, i think the consumption sentiment has been still soft uh, lately like personally i have I, I'm a collector of like, uh, you know, like ancient coins and banknotes. And I actually per, uh, try to participate uh, online auctions in China, like almost every week. So like I have a pretty good sense on, uh, you know, like um, um, the collectible uh, sentiment in China. And I can tell you that uh, for normal stuff, uh, like not really high-end stuff, like the price uh, of the hammer price of the normal stuff have been actually falling like maybe about at least 20 to 30% uh, from the hammer price, uh, like maybe three to four months ago. So uh, I think that um, the consumption sentiment has actually been weakening uh, instead of, uh, you know, have turning around the corner. But on the other hand, um, the good sign is the industrial activities, as you said, the manufacturing activities have been picking up, um, especially um, in September, because um, as far as I know, um, well, uh, the pandemic uh, outside of China has been actually benefiting uh, China in terms of manufacturing activities, because I know that um, Many other parts of countries in the world, uh, because of the pandemic, uh, they couldn't uh, open uh, food capacity uh, on their manufacturing side. So many orders have actually been uh, reallocated to China uh, in the last month or so. Uh, so right now, um, the manufacturing activities in China has been picking up at, at, at a very fast pace. 
Um, so I think right now um, this is one of the major reasons why we see that um, China has been importing large, relatively large quantities of iron ore, copper, and other raw materials because um, their manufacturing activities have been picking up and they are uh, trying to, uh, you know, like uh, replacing um, the capacity the capacities that was not uh, originally uh, in other parts of countries like India or uh, Western countries because um, of the pandemic. Hmm. Okay, so I, w- I want to back up. I, I do want to spend that time about the uh, the in- the industri- indus- industrial uh, manufacturing complex there. But you mentioned sure. something earlier. I just want to follow up on. You said that uh, prices of normal things, normal items, have been falling. Is there a case of deflation in China because of this? Um, the normal, the normal, the prices of normal items have been falling. Uh, was specifically uh, regarding to uh, collectibles. Okay. Okay. Uh, but at the same time, the really high-end collectible stuff uh, has actually been increasing. Um, so I think uh, this is what is happening in China or in Hong Kong is um, we are seeing deflation and inflation at the same time. It really depends on what kind of product you are uh, mentioning. Uh, for products for normal people um, or even for the you know the grassroots, I think actually um, the prices have been decreasing because uh, as the demand has been falling as well as you know the grassroots have been uh, trying to cutting down their cost uh, because for example as I said uh, unemployment rates increasing uh, and then like they tra- uh, they try to save more money, but at the same time. Uh, for some really relatively high-end stuff, um, I think actually uh, the prices or the costs have been increasing at the same time. Um, for example, like um, in Hong Kong, uh, I usually go to a Barbara like every month. Uh, and then before the pandemic, um, the co- uh, like the cost of cutting hair at my Barbara shop uh, before and after the pandemic, uh, the costs have risen like maybe around 30 hmm. uh, percent uh, yeah <laughs> I was surprised as well because I was actually thinking like they have to cut the price because of the poor economy in Hong Kong but surprisingly uh, they have actually hiked up the price and um, it's still packed yeah. so I think yeah so I think at the end of the day it really depends on the demand and supply and um, for the grassroots products, um, I think the demand has been falling, and that's why the price have been uh, uh, going downwards as well. But um, for the more expensive stuff, uh, high-end stuff, uh, the price have actually been increasing. Oh, very interesting. I mean, I, you just kind of—I compare it a little bit from what you just told me to what we're seeing here in the states, and just from my observation, uh, you know, food is increasing in prices. I see it on the meat bill beef has gone up uh pork has seemed to have gone down uh, uh we're seeing other f- relative just basic home goods toilet paper uh you know paper products uh going up uh how you know uh uh residential housing has not missed a beat in fact uh residential housing prices throughout the country have gone up because of people fleeing the big cities and going into the suburbs or other places outside the big cities. So it's in, it's just an interesting comparison to see 
you know, just what I observe from my everyday life and then hearing what's happening and what you are seeing from Hong Kong and China. So very interesting. Yeah, I think personally, I think in the longer run, uh, I believe uh, food prices uh, will increase as well in China. Um, as you mentioned that uh, I'm kind of a pessimistic about um, the geopolitical risk uh, in the next few years, including the relationship between uh, China and the U.S., um, so I think in the longer run, uh, I think, um, you know, like a global trade in terms of food may kind of declining and uh, China will have to rely more and more on self-production in terms of food. Um, so I think in the long run, um, you know, like um, because of cut down in global trade and then there will be less synergy and then cost of many things, including food, will have to go up in the future. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another thing you mentioned, so exports to China rose almost yep. 10% in September, uh, and industrial activities were also picking up. And you kind of attribute this to because China's been able to recover from the pandemic uh, uh, faster than a number of other countries that also have big industrial complexes. You think that China's been able to kind of take in some of that work and kind of feed the con the global consumer, right? Uh, yes, but I think it's only for a short period of time uh, because as long as, uh, you know, like the pandemic situation in other countries uh, 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 have become under control and then uh, the industrial activities in these countries uh, have begun to uh, pick and, uh, picking up. Uh, and then I think these orders will be reallocated back to these countries. For example, I hear that um, lots of textile orders, which was initially allocated to India, have been reallocated to China. So from what I have heard that uh, many uh, Chinese people working in the textile industry has claimed that um, the massive orders they have received uh, like has been at highest level they have ever seen uh, uh, since they have been in the industry in the last maybe 10 or 20 years. Um, but as I said, I think this is temporary and um, how long will it last? It really depends on how quickly the pandemic will be under control in other parts of the world. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you're basically, we, we, we looked at a six month timetable for the turnaround for China. If you look at kind of the bottom from Q1 to into yes. September, um, it, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, here in the United States, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you, Samson, to think that we could even turn this thing around here in six months here, I, I just, it makes me shake my head. That I am pessimistic about. Um, I mean, that's a pretty quick time, you know, a pretty quick uh, uh, schedule on the global scale of things with this pandemic. Um, yes. So I think um, other countries uh, can use time, uh, China's uh, schedule uh, as, you know, um, as a guidance on how quick the Western economy, in theory, can recover. So um, I think uh, as everyone's uh, attention now, other than the U.S. presidential election, is about the timetable of our, you know, vaccine. Uh, when an effective vaccine uh, can come out um, to treat the mass population. Um, personally, I'm not too optimistic. Uh, I think um, by the time an effective 
proven vaccine is out to the market available for the mass population, um, I think it has to be like sometime in the second half of next year, yeah, year 2021. Mm. So like, so uh, apply six, another six months uh, starting the mass uh, population in other parts of the world taking an effective vaccine. So uh, we are looking that um, the global economy will not back to normal or close to the normal levels until probably the second half of year 2022. So that means in the next one year or so, um, I expect the global economy may be slowly recovering, maybe slow, maybe modestly better than what we are seeing right now, but not by much. Just do the Chinese have this same mentality towards a vaccine as the Western countries do, as you know, we're kind of just waiting for that vaccine to be approved, be released, taken by the masses, and everything will be fine. Or uh, are the Chinese just say, you know, we're going to do what we have to do uh, the hard way and, and get through this without the vaccine? Um. I think the mass population are still trying to rely on the vaccine. And right now, um, I think the Chinese developed vaccine is already like slowly getting into the population. Um, but right now, I think only about 60,000 uh, people um, out of, you know, like uh, over like, you know, 30 million population have already taken the uh, local developed vaccine. So like, you know, more and more people are starting to take a vaccine, but it's still a far cry uh, from, you know, like the majority of the population has taken it. Um, but certainly um, the majority of the population are looking forward to take the vaccine. Uh, but at the same time, um, the government officials are very cautious of a potential, you know, like third wave or fourth wave attack of COVID uh, in the winter. Okay, so... Uh, this is just fascinating stuff. Uh, we have yes. to we have to turn it to gold and silver, precious metals, because yep. we're gold bugs, and that's what we do. We can't have any conversation about anything without turning it into the yellow metal. <laughs> it's that highlights our yep. lives. Um, <clears throat> you kind of paint a pretty bleak picture here, economically yep. over the next uh, year or two. Uh, yeah. So what what does this mean for these monetary metals? Well, because like, um, as I said, like um, to have a, like a more reasonable timeline uh, for the whole global econ economy to starting to, you know, trying to get back to the normal levels, it would take at least like maybe the second half of year 2022. Uh, because like uh, I expect um, an effective vaccine starting to get into the majority of the global population uh, won't happen until the second half of next year. And then I will give another six months of time at least uh, for the global economy to slowly recovering. But after that, once the global economy is starting to getting out from the hole uh, of the pandemic, um, I am getting pes pessimistic about, you know, the geopolitical risk um, because uh, right as I mentioned that um, the relationship between China and the United States probably won't recover no matter who will become the next uh, U.S. president 
um, in the upcoming term. Um, because, as you know, um, you know um, the political system is the, the president uh, serves the country, serves the voters. So uh, it doesn't really matter uh, what the president believes in. Um, but more important is what the majority of the voters uh, they want. Um, so I think that um, the pandemic will, as you said, uh, will make um, the global economy worse. And not just the United States, but most of the countries, they will, uh, they will be uh, put more attention on, you know, like job creation. Uh, they want more uh, local jobs. Uh, they they will like try to. Uh, next more uh, you know like uh, global trades they will oppose of global trades so I think uh, in the longer run um, the geopolitical risk will increase and uh, so given the future uh, economic environment at least in the next maybe two or three years um, there will be massive money printing more and more debt um, the economic growth will be low uh, or even somehow like contraction in some areas. And you know, um, possibly for the decline of global interest rates because like um, obviously the central banks will have to stimulate um, economic recovery. And adding the rising geopolitical political tensions, I think uh, it will be insane if you believe um, gold and silver have no value in everyone's portfolio. <laughs> I'm glad you said this because you are not the first person to come out and say that you believe that no matter who wins the presidential election here in the United States, tensions between the U.S. and China will remain high. I know yes. there's this ongoing dialogue. You know, the uh, the GOP and, and President Trump like to paint Joe Biden as uh, a, a China favoritist. <laughs> Uh, yep. But I've, you, you're you're not the only one. I mean, our our friend Chris Temple from the National Investor in recent interviews has said he believes that Biden will be just as tough, if not tougher, on China, uh, because basically the the market in the state has leaned that direction of a necessity to do that, and I guess through it, you know through many of his flaws, maybe that was one of the successes of President Trump. Well, to be honest, uh, I think Biden, there's every possibility that Biden could be actually more anti-China than Trump has been. Uh, because first, uh, traditionally, um, I think the Democrats have been less friendly to Chinese uh, from a historical perspective. And secondly, obviously, Biden will have will have to like try to, you know, to gain his popular popularity uh, to have a have another shot for a second term in case he, in case if he wins the upcoming presidential election. On contrary, Trump already wins the. Uh, if Trump wins, this is already his second term, and in theory he cannot nominate for an for a third term uh, of the U.S. Presid uh, pr uh, presidency. So, uh, from Trump's pr uh, perspective, uh, he can actually um, do more. Um, like to want uh, to uh, introduce more policy on what he believes rather than what his voters want in the in the second term. Well, Biden, I think he actually could possibly possibly be more anti-Chinese if 
um, you know, like um, the U.S. the majority of the U.S. voters actually has become more anti-Chinese. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I hope there's a number of people just kind of sitting back listening to this. Uh, they're just like, ah, everything that I've been told might be wrong. That's right. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know what will happen. Okay. Um, another topic we need to switch to, Samson, is I, I want to talk to you a little bit about these stories that we are hearing about China and the base metal complex. We have seen reports yes. that China is just going all out gangbusters in, I guess you could call it hoarding as much base metal, industrial metals as they can. Uh, it's an ongoing theme that we see from the country to stimulate economic growth during hard times. Here's some numbers. Uh, there was a forecast deficit, speaking of copper, last year of just 52,000 tons. Um, and that is a dramatic change. Excuse me, let me repeat that. There's a forecast deficit now, a small one of 52,000 tons when, in relation to copper. Last year at the same time, there was expected to be a 280,000 ton surplus. And that it's not massive numbers, but it's enough to make you realize just how much copper China is importing right now. Yes, um, I think uh, the pandemic has actually like uh, contribute um, to a supply disruption of uh, copper, especially copper uh, mine supplies, because, you know, like a uh, Latin America has been like one of the largest uh, copper producers in the last few years. But, you know, the pandemic has actually been quite severe in these countries. So um, there has been a disruption in uh, most of the mining uh, materials, but particularly in copper. And, you know, like, like um, to be honest, the copper prices have not been performing that well in the last uh, maybe like 10 years or so. And there has been a severe underinvestment in whether in both in uh, existing or new copper projects. So like, you know, as the mining industry has is very cyclical, um, the majority reason is because uh, even if the miners start pouring large, cap large amount of capital into copper mines today, um, we probably won't be able to see a massive increase in supply at least in the next two to five years because like mining is a very long cycle. Um, so um, in addition that uh, I think that China and other countries will follow in the next few years once uh, the pandemic has been under control, uh, will try to kickstart um, the economy by you know, like uh, building massive infrastructure. Uh, so like copper will be one of the more important uh, materials in, term of, in terms of uh, infrastructure building. And uh, last but not least, uh, the electrification economy. Like uh, many countries have been like upscaling their um, future production in terms of electric cars. And while many people have been talking about the importance of, you know, like nickel, cobalt, and lithium, um, I think many people have neglected uh, the important role of copper in electric vehicles. 
um, for example, um, if I remember correctly, I think an average EV will consume about two times copper as much as a normal car right now. So definitely, I think copper is and will become more and more important metal uh, in the global economy. Yeah, it's <laughs> so. What what else is what other of these metals is is China really looking to import it? You know, going on a spending spree with right now, other than copper. Yeah, well, because you know, like um, the way of the Chinese are doing things, uh, the transparency is very low. So, like, it really, uh, from what I know, like, it really depends on from what I hear on the rumors on the streets, and you know, like, uh, plus some education. <laughs> guess uh, so i think uh right now um the chinese have been importing uh, a huge amount of metals uh including copper but i think other than um the industrial manufacturing activity activities have been picking up in the in since september i think another important angle that many people uh, may not realize is that um i think the chinese government has also uh, being foreseeing that the relationship between uh, uh, the two countries uh, will turn sour like in the next few years. So they have to start building up their, you know, strategic reserves, uh, particularly in base metals and other strategic metals, just in case in the future they may have problems to import these uh, metals in the future. So other than copper, um, I know an obvious uh, matter that the, uh, the country will build a strategic reserve is cobalt. Uh, and then maybe nickel, uh, lithium, uh, also like, you know, like surefire bats. Uh, other than these, I think other like high-end, uh, like materials being used in high-end technology, like, you know, like um, tin, and other like some kind of uh, indium, uh, these kind of like minor minority metals being used in uh, high-end technology will also be uh, heavily sought uh, by the Chinese government. There are many reasons to be bullish copper right now. I mean, obviously the price shows that it's in high demand. It's uh, in low production. Right now, so you know it's got the supply and demand factor. Um, we see this at times when we think that uh, you know uh, there's going to be infrastructure spending and and more manufacturing that's going to need this metal. We've seen an inflow of long positions in copper, but we're also contrarians here, Samson. When we yeah. see this, we kind of the hair kind of stands up in our back a little bit. Do you feel like there's a time to worry about copper right now? Of course. Um, like, based on what I said, I am very, very bullish on copper in the long run. Actually, I think um, the copper price in the long term uh, may have more upside compared to gold. Mm. Um, however, in the short term, uh, I'm actually quite worried about the copper price um, because, one, um, when I read the weekly CF. TC data, um, I see that right now um, the managed money positions in copper, meaning the funds positioning in copper, has been at a very low, uh, ha has been at a very high level. 
uh, like probably the highest level in the last three or four years right now. And it's just like about uh, 30% uh, lower from its historical high level uh, compared to gold and silver. Uh, right now, um, their managed net positions is about like 50% lower than the historical high levels. Uh, so right now, uh, what is a crowded trade? The crowded trade, I think, is uh, many funds and speculators and people have been A, they have been longing copper, B, they have been shorting the US dollar, and C, they have been shorting US bonds. These three trades are crowd trades right now. So what I think could possibly happen is um, mostly, uh, before and after the U.S. presidential election, no matter who wins, I think the U.S. stock market uh, could uh, uh, there could be like a more significant uh, downside uh, correction happen in the U.S. stock equity market, unless the Fed will come up and do something. But um, I'm kind of bearish uh, on a. A significant pullback in the U.S. equity market because a it has been like uh, overrun, uh, and it has not been actually been supported by fundamentals because as you mentioned, um, the U.S. economy has not been doing quite well uh, recently. And c, um, I don't think there's any more short-term catalyst um, to help the U.S. equity uh, going higher, and no matter whether it's Biden or Trump. Um, both of them don't have the incentive um, uh, to to help the U.S. equity market heading higher when they first become uh, the U.S. Uh, pres uh, president because uh, both of them would prefer the stock market to go down first initially when they first come into the office so that they can have more room to improve and help to pull up the equity index again uh, towards the end of their, their terms. So I think um, if indeed the U.S. equity market starts to correct uh, right after uh, the U.S presidential election, I think the U.S. equity market and copper will go down and then the U.S. dollar and the U.S. bonds will go up. So um, the copper longs and the U.S. dollar shorts and the U.S. bonds shorts will all get killed in the short run. All right. We've covered just a ton of information, but just focusing on what you just said about potential for a U.S. market correction leading up to or shortly after the U.S. elections. How are you playing this market? What is your strategy here, Samson? Um, well, I have been advising people to, you know, like increasing this uh, their cash levels. Uh, so that they can have more bullets to spend uh, if there is indeed a bloodbath uh, in, uh, in the next maybe two months or so. Um, another troubling sign that I have discovered is uh, despite the copper price have risen to like close to $3.20 uh, recently, um, like there have been quite a few copper juniors, the price, the stock price of uh, copper juniors failed to, you know, like uh, manage to rise uh, in line with the copper price. So in, in other words, in the last few trading days, 
uh, I observed that um, the copper, you know, equity market has been actually underperforming the metal itself, which uh, when I applied the same thing on gold and, and silver, is usually a bad sign, uh, suggesting that the copper price may be uh, heading down in the next uh, few weeks. So I think uh, I have been suggesting to people or my subscribers of my newsletter that um, start like taking profits, trying to raise your cash level, and then so that you can, uh, you know, take advantage of the upcoming opportunity to buy more high quality gold, silver, and copper names in the upcoming uh, correction. Sound advice, Samson. Uh, I cannot thank you enough. It's, uh, you know, we always do this. It's always late in the day for me to connect with you and, and almost early enough in the morning to where I hope you had a cup of coffee yeah. <laughs> to, to get this conversation. But, uh, you know, I will, I don't care if it's a midnight, my time to connect with you. It's always just so overwhelmingly valuable to, to have a conversation with you. Thank you very much for your compliment, Trevor. I really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, Samson Lee, tell everybody how they can reach out and connect with you uh, before we let you go. Yeah, um, please follow my Twitter. Uh, it's uh, at Samson Lee uh, 7. Uh, so um, I'm happy to get connected with more larger, uh, you know, investment community, whether you're interested in, uh, you know, mining investment or not. All right. He's our Hong Kong correspondent, as I like to call him, and uh, he's uh, just incredible to have on the show. Samson Lee, we were going to take a short break, and we will be back with our second segment of the show. Hey, before we get into our discussion with Rob, just a quick shout out uh, to everybody out there. I know there is just a ton of online and virtual events happening now uh, through this whole time. Uh, I am a media partner with the Soar Financial German Gold Show. So I just wanted to give a little bit of a plug to that event that's on November 5th and 6th. If you go over to soarfinancial.com, click on that events tab, you should find registration information on uh, to register for the event. He's got a great group of listeners over there, including Rick Rule, Frank Holmes, and Rob McEwen. Uh, Willem Middlecoop, who I am scheduled to talk to next week, will also be speaking. Uh, I will be attending and happy to be uh, partnering with the SOAR Financial crew to help promote this event. Again, go to soarfinancial.com, click on the events tab, and you should find registration information for the German Gold Show. Okay, we're going to get back to the show with my conversation with Rob Sin, the CEO technician. back here on the second segment of our in-depth long-form interview as we always air on the Friday morning to get you into the last day of trading 
and through the weekend. Happy to be rejoined by our friend Rob Sin, aka CEO Technician and the Trading Lab. Hey Rob, welcome back. Thanks Trevor, I'm glad to be here. Uh, we are just kind of following up. We had a previous conversation on Wednesday. Uh, so, but there's a number of things we wanted to talk about, uh, more or less on the terms of strategies and kind of, um, you know, looking at mistakes, uh, common mistakes people and, and speculators might make when putting their capital to work in this sector. Um, you know, let's let's cover a few of those and some thoughts that you want to be sure you communicate to our listeners. And uh, obviously, uh, you got to learn from your mistakes, but what are some of the common mistakes that people make? Yeah, Trevor. So this is something that came to my mind in the past couple of days. Uh, sort of, I've done I've done blog posts on this, you know, last year, but sort of stuff that's fresh in my mind right now. I think the first one that comes to mind is is staying stuck long a stock when the company keeps moving the goalposts, keeps shifting timelines, or fails to meet important milestones you know I, I think that's so important um and and we can't uh be too dogmatic you know with this because obviously there are certain things in terms of timelines that are out of a company's hands like getting the assays back uh the labs you know might just be so bogged down that it just you know you can't force them to to work faster but there are there are some things that I think are really important when a company says they're going to carry out certain work uh, on a given time frame and obviously we want to give them a little bit of leeway with the time frame but when it's just blatantly not even close to the timelines that were stated months ago um, or you know, they just shift focus suddenly. They're like, they're focused on one project and then all of a sudden acquire some new option on a new project and suddenly that's their flagship. You know, the companies that are not focused don't keep to their word and their own stated, their own stated, you know, objectives and timelines. I think that's a real, I, you know, I hate to say it, it's a red flag. It, it's something that should probably cause us to just sell and, and find a better opportunity. I, I say that's the first thing on my mind here today. Um, it, Rob, let me before, let me interject there just with a kind of a follow-up question. Just kind of follow in line, there has been some conversations online with some a few of these companies that maybe uh, were a base metal company and then about midway through the year, uh, they wanted to provide more exposure to their precious metals. Uh, that they knew that they had, but really wasn't the focus previous. So, you know, a copper company trying to put more focus on their gold assets in the ground or a zinc company putting more focus on their silver credits in the ground. Does that kind of fall in the same line here? Yeah, Trevor, that's a great question. I mean, uh, I would say there's no 100% clear answer to that question, but I would say you as an investor, as a shareholder, you need to ask yourself, is this a real project? Does this project have real merits? Or is it just because there's some gold there and they can put gold in the name so that they can raise money or maybe get the share price a little higher? 
is it just a short term fit, you know, a thrill or is it a real project? Does the project have merits? Um, and, you know, uh, you, you have to figure that out for yourself. And I would suggest talking to the company and ask them some probing questions find out how they acquired the project why is this now a new focus is it just because gold or silver you know is in the name and what about the previous flagship project well you know what's going on with that you know uh i think you just have to figure it out for yourself but generally speaking generally speaking uh in the junior mining sector when companies are skipping from project to project to project not being focused, that is, June, generally speaking, a negative sign for shareholders. So you don't necessarily find it a red flag to for a company to maybe switch some of their promotional language and provide more maybe emphasis on a precious metal when for the last five years they've been a base metal company? Focus. Well... I mean, okay, so you, if it's you the same project, if it's a, if it's the same project, if it's the same project, they haven't switched projects. Uh no, I don't think that's a red flag. I mean, obviously, you see, you know, here's the thing: all these companies that are doing a lot of exploration work need to raise capital to fund their activities. That's a simple fact, and in order to generate the maximum shareholder value. They want to raise capital at the best prices possible, the highest share prices possible on the best terms. And so it's their job to tell their story as effectively as possible in order to get the best valuation for their shares possible. And there's nothing wrong or sleazy about that as long as they are telling the truth. Okay. Well, this kind of comes back into the lines of promotion versus actual exploration. And promotion, and I think we I've had this conversation numerous times here on the podcast, it's a double-edged sword. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. <laughs> yeah, so so that's another topic that came to my mind. You know, there are some, I'm not going to name names, it's going to be a little vague here, and this could probably apply to companies in your portfolio as well. There are some companies that are really good at promotion. They're really good at marketing. They've got a bunch of, you know, writers following them. They, they have ads popping up everywhere on all these different mining sites. Their CEO attends every conference and they've got a great slide deck and they've got all kinds of cool stuff on their website. They're really good at the marketing angle, right? But they're not doing a lot of exploration, there's not a lot of real news flows. There's not a lot of real substance. So when a company is too one-sided to the promo side, I'd say that's a red flag. Then there are companies where the, the CEO and the chairman are like scientists and, and they treat their company's projects like you know, little science projects. It's their pet science project and they're they're, they're carrying out a lot of activities that's sort of under the radar that they can't really, you know, articulate well to the market. And even when they do drill and generate, 
good news flow, they're not very good at telling the story to the market. And they have very little coverage and nobody really cares about the company. And I'd say that's a red flag. So it's really uh, crucial for a junior mining company to have a balance. You need to be able to tell the story to the market. You need to gain a wider audience, a wider following, more eyeballs on the company and the company news. But also you need to have some real substance and you need to be putting shareholders dollars into the ground and not all spent on promotion and into the CEO and the chairman's pockets. You know, mineral exploration is a risky business, but I think one of the things that makes it so difficult for a, a larger demographic to put their capital behind is that it's so technical. It's a, it's a hard industry to just jump into and, you know, and, and kind of pick up it and feel like you've got a good grasp on it. I mean, I've been in here, I've been in this for, you know, six or seven years and every day I learn something new and I'm sure you've been in it much longer and I would be, I think it's safe to say that every day you learn something new. Yeah, because we're not, ge- we're not <laughs> geologists, you know? Right. you know, we're not metallurgists. And so we continue to learn, but do we need to just kind of understand that and be okay with like, listen, I know, I know geology, I know metallurgy, like I know how to build mines, but what I know most people don't, how do I break this down and make it simple and factual and kind of feed the masses and, and make it easier? Yeah, that's really, really good point there and a, a good question, Trevor. So, you know, I think we could sort of wrap this up with a couple comments on that and then one more sort of tip, you know, that I have here. Um, you're right. I'm learning every single day. I've been I've been following the sector. I've been a shareholder in the sector for almost 20 years, and and I you know there's always new things to learn. I would say that my number one job as an investor, as a trader, as a shareholder in the junior mining sector is to assemble lots of information from multiple sources and process it and filter it as effectively as I possibly can. I focus on certain people that I find their commentary, their analysis, and their opinions to be much more valuable than everybody else. And then I also process various information from all different sources and filter it through my brain and, and my knowledge, uh, you know, filter my knowledge bank, and then I formulate an opinion based upon that. And it's not, it's never going to be a perfect opinion. It's never going to be perfect, but it's going to be good enough to do well over the long run. And then I would say, and this is so important because you're right. You you said that this sector is so difficult to analyze because some of the the knowledge and insights are so specialized and even people that have that specialized knowledge still get it wrong right there there's no perfect science um and so that's why bankroll management is so critical you never want to put yourself in a situation where you've bet you've put too much into any 
one thing. So we kind of have to use a shotgun approach and, and, and have a basket of holdings so that we can never get hurt too badly when we get it really wrong. But if we get it really right a few times and we get this 10 baggers or 20 baggers, we'll make more than enough to make up for any uh, bad uh, you know, investment choices. So I'll just leave that there. Then I want to add one more thing and we can wrap this up. So mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that's come really uh, into my vision recently is so often I think in this sector – when we sell a company, you know, we sell a stock, you know, let's say we sell for a loss. It didn't go well while we owned it. And then we sort of just like put it into our, our trash basket. We don't want to look at that company and its news flow with the same set of eyes as we did when we owned it. And so I think that sometimes we cost ourselves and we miss out on new opportunities when we um, sort of put that stock into the basket of stocks that I'll never buy again. Because sometimes stories change. The new CEO comes on on board, a new management team comes on board. Uh, maybe the, the company is completely overhauled in, in, in terms of its project portfolio or just the market changes. Maybe the price of gold went up so high that suddenly now all this company's mining operations are super profitable and the projects look much more attractive. All kinds of things can change. And I think that when the facts change, you know, when they change enough, sometimes we really have to change our mind. And if we get too stubborn or too biased a certain way, that's when we either make big mistakes or we miss out on big opportunities in the market. Rob, I always enjoy your uh, words of wisdom when you come on the show. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I do. I like it's it's a uh, you know it was a a year ago when we were in the Yukon where you and I uh, first touched base and met in person ever since then, man, that's uh, I'm telling you, I don't, I don't take these conversations for granted at all. Well, thank you. I don't either. And I appreciate every invitation that you send me. And, uh, I wish you a very profitable, uh, you know, week of, of trading here in the market. And hopefully the juniors do catch an end of year rally. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, well, after this week, it's looking okay, ain't it? So, <laughs> yeah. All right. All right, Rob. Thanks so much, buddy. Take care of yourself. You too. Thanks, Trevor. And that's going to wrap things up this week on Mining Stock Daily. Take care, everybody. We'll be back Monday morning with the news briefing. Be well. <laughs>